0: Welcome to the Iron Brew Podcast. It's another in-conversation episode
1: for you, but this one's a little bit different to normal. Uh, so if you've heard our most recent regular episode, you'll know what we're going to be doing here. Uh, but if not, or you need a reminder, we've decided to open up the series to players from before the time of the panel. Uh, but in order to bring you the same quality of interview as our regular in-conversation episodes, we've decided to bring in a little bit of help. Uh, so for these 80s episodes, the former BBC Radio Humberside, Scunthorpe United commentator, Tony Shepperton will be conducting the bulk of the interview. And um, we're starting off with a good one, because first up, we've
2: got none other than Julian Borrell. So Julian, how are you?
1: I'm absolutely fantastic and delighted to be here, although this is a bit uh, unusual because I, I, as I've just been telling you, I don't know how to use Zoom, so it's going to be audio throughout. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sure that'll be absolutely fine. So I guess, Tony, we'll hand over to you then. Thank you very much and good evening, Julian. Hi, Tony. It's been a long time, mate, yeah? 27 or so years, mate, I've been counting this afternoon. and. Wow. It's ironic that you're there saying you don't know how to use Zoom. In my first interview, guess who I had to interview? It was Julian Brothel. I don't know if you can remember it or not. It was one Saturday afternoon, last match of the season. And uh, I got you up. Frank said, you can take Julian. And um, I started to interview you and I said to you, it's my first one. I've never done it before. This is only my second commentary. And you said, that's all right, I'll help you through it. So I'll help you through tonight if I can, mate. Fantastic. Been a while so tonight we're going to talk about your early start in football, your, your progress through the clubs that you played for, your success in Scotland, your police career, and then your journalism side writing that book. So let's start at the beginning. Your skills were spotted at a very early age when you were playing in an under-12 side at, at the age of six even that attracted calendar news on the TV. Can What can you remember about that? Wow. Um,
1: yes, a very long time ago. Uh, at that particular point, I was I was quite a good little footballer and I was playing for my local team who were like 12-year-olds and I was like six. And because I was reasonably good, um, they allowed me to play with them and they won a lot of Guinness Book of Record awards because forever beating everybody at crazy scores so um so I was part of that and during this spell there was a, a scout called Eddie Edwards and uh, Eddie did come to Scunthorpe for a while as a scout but um he spotted me he knew I was a Sheffield United fanatic and um that's how it really started I started playing for as as I got a bit older for Sheffield United's like younger teams their uh, boy boy clubs so to speak and that's how it started. you train in, you know, in the summer holidays and what have you at Bramall Lane uh, to see all the all the big stars and all your big heroes.
2: And um, that's how it was. Sheffield United was me through and through. Eddie Edwards, he played a big part in your career, didn't he? He spotted you for Sheffield United, and then when he was at Scunthorpe, was he part of your thinking to come to Scunthorpe because he was there?
1: Yes, he was. Uh, and the fact also that um, he was talking to me all the time and he, he says, look, you're going to get probably a regular game here. Whereas I'd just made my debut of Sheffield United and I was probably the third or fourth player, you know, behind the, the, the major players at Sheffield United. So he says, if you come to us, we're in the same division, you'll probably get a regular game.
2: And I thought, well, why not?
1: Because I've got nothing to lose,
2: really. But while you was at Sheffield United, you made your way into the reserve side and you was playing at such uh, stadiums as Villa Park, Old Trafford, Anfield, attracting crowds of five, five and a half thousand people. That must have been a great thrill to a young lad.
1: Yeah, it was a brilliant experience to be playing at, like you said, Anfield in Old Trafford and places like that, Aston Villa. And a lot of them were well-known players playing in the reserves. Some were just coming back from injury or being suspended, all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of well-known players playing in what they called the Central League then. Uh, and it was a fantastic experience for me. It did really help me. But at times I thought, ooh, am I going to be good enough to do this? You know, Because sometimes I thought I'm, I, must be, I'm, I was out of my depth. But um, I was just a young lad learning the trade. And, um, as you know, slowly, slowly, I got
2: better and better and improved. And, um, like I said, eventually I I made my debut. So can you remember any of the big names that you played against or people that went on to be big names at at these clubs? In reserves, it was, uh, I can remember playing against, can you remember Mark
1: Walters? Um, Yeah. He played for Villa and he was a flying machine. And I thought, how am I going to catch this guy? (laughs) Uh, And it was just because he was playing with Aston Villa I think it was Aston Villa. And they, they were so fast. There was a lot of good players playing in that team. And it, it just made me realise, you know, am, am I going to ever get to his standard? But yeah, people like I can even remember playing against Howard Kendall. Now, he was at the end of his career. And I think he was just doing it as a player manager for um, Everton. But to be playing on the same park of people like Howard Kendall and, and what have you. And I thought, this is fantastic. It was... and like. Uh, uh, Manchester United, I can't imagine who was playing in those teams in the reserves, but there was a lot of big stars in, in there and you, you thought, I'm, under, I'm I'm playing at Old Trafford against these Manchester United stars. This is fantastic. I was pushed quite quickly, of course, by Ian Porterfield who was the manager at United and um, I was sort of his blue-eyed boy for a short time. So that's, that's probably why I got into the reserve
2: so quickly. But also, you'd been selected for England training, hadn't you? Um, and you've got uh, called into the Sheffield United first team squad and didn't really get called anymore for first England training for the, for the junior sides. Do you think if you hadn't have been called up so early, it, it might have progressed more for England?
1: It might have. Uh, you never know, do you? I did go down. Um, my mum bought me a nice velvet suit because I thought that's quite trendy at the time. <laughs> and I went down and uh, on the train with, Paul Stewart, played for Blackpool and Manchester City. And Is it Paul Stewart? can't remember his first name. Uh, I'm sure you guys will know. Uh, so we went down on the train. I did train for two or three days and then in Porterfield pulled me out of it. And um, of course, wanted me to be part of the first team. Whether that, they thought, well, you can't leave England while you're, while you're here. But I was just doing as I'm told because I was just a young lad. So I got pulled out of it and yeah, I was never asked again.
2: You just made one appearance for Sheffield United, and then it was on to Scunthorpe. But you was the youngest player at that time ever to play for the Blades, weren't you? That must have given you a little bit of pride, seeing that you were a Sheffield United supporter. Yeah,
1: they put me into the to make my debut. I was there or thereabouts, and um, but then suddenly he says, "Right, you're playing today." Uh, I didn't expect it. He hadn't told me. It was just that two o'clock before you know an hour before the kickoff. off so um, there we go we made my debut and it was at that point the youngest player in 100 years to play with Sheffield United and I don't know if you know the paper there's a some cities have an evening sports paper and ours was called the Greenland in Sheffield yes yeah and Tony Pritchett was the writer of Sheffield United. I can always, I, I can remember it now. There was this green and paper and a picture of me with my shirt hanging out and looking shattered. And said, Groddle will get another chance or something like that. And um, I didn't because I left. I went to Scunthorpe. So. But that's not a good, maybe that was the best thing that ever happened. You just don't know.
2: And when you did come to Scunthorpe, Alan Clark was in charge. And were his methods any different to what you have been used to at Bramall Lane? Yes, is
1: you obviously know Alan Clark well, and a lot of the Scunthorpe fans will know Alan Clark, and he still lives in Scunthorpe after all these years. Um, he was different. He was. He has this arrogance about him, although if you really know Alan Clark, he isn't arrogant, but he comes across with this arrogant aura. And he believed in himself, and he had this sort—he had this arrogance, of, an aura of arrogance. I think that's the only way I can explain it, really. So, but when I got there, of course—and this is with the greatest respect—I'd left Bramble Lane, and then I went to the old showground, and I thought, okay, this is different, and it was just—it was just totally different from what I'd been used to all the years as a schoolboy growing up at Bramall Lane. Now, in time, of course, I got used to the old show, Brown, and I loved it. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a fantastic time, and a quarter of my career, I believe, I think. Yeah, it could have been, yeah.
2: Yeah, When Clark was at Leeds, everybody said that he used to make the team have a shot of whiskey before every game. He never did that at Scunthorpe, did he? He did uh, every
1: game, and I, I couldn't believe. I remember once. I'd, this is probably my book, which I'm going to mention, of course, like I always do. Um, I remember once uh, Surrey and Botham was playing for us, and um, Alan Clark the Sniffer, uh, seemed was beefy, as everybody knows him, and no one could find him. And then um, he's going around. Alan Clark, he unscrews the top of the cap because it was screw top whiskey, and you'd fill up uh, the top, the cap with some whiskey, and said, you know, get it down your son, that'll warm you up, get it down, get you ready. And then we're all looking for Ian Botham, and there he is. He'd already got his shot of whiskey with him. Uh, he's got a cigar in one hand, and he's got the programme on the floor, and he's sat on the toilet reading the programme. You just can't picture it, <laughs> but that, that was then,
2: and, and that's not a lie, that was the truth. Well, I was going to ask you about Ian Botham, and you've led us nicely into it. What type of player was he, and how do you rate him as a player? He always wanted to play up front, but he was too heavy at that time, in my
1: opinion. But he was quite a good centre-half. And I think if uh, we could have lost a little bit of weight, just a bit, he could have been a cracking centre-half for
2: for a lot of clubs in in the third and fourth division. I think uh, you and Ian got on fairly well, didn't you, by all reports? And uh, you became rather friendly.
1: Yeah, got on well with him. We kept in touch. I remember when I was playing for Barnsley, at um, Sunderland away at Roker Park. And there's a there's a knock on the door and um, there's Ian Botham saying, hi, Jules, can I, you know, I want to see you and all this. And obviously, uh, Alan Clark was the manager for me then at Barnsley. And um, and he's shouting, I'll see you later, oh, Jules, I'll see you later. And then <laughs> some of the lads were thinking, how do you, you've never mentioned him. And a lot of them were cricket fanatics. And he says, He's my hero, and yet he's shouting, you Jules, can I see you in the players' lounge?" <laughs> so it was like weird. I said, well, I've just never mentioned it. He thought we can't. So when we're going back after the game, I sat in the back seat with all these cricket uh, my team, Barnsley players, but some of them were really cricket uh, supporters. And, and Ian was obviously a big star. And they just wouldn't leave me alone. So we sat in the back seat, wanted to talk about Ian Botham and not about the game
2: and how we played that day. So yeah, different, brilliant. You made your debut for Scunthorpe United against Port Vale away and by your own admission uh, you said you had a poor game. Did this bother you? I mean, not as up to standard game for your first one for for the club? Yeah, um, in
1: hindsight, uh, I now can look back and every club I went to, I was was poor when I first started with every club and I, I did go to a lot of clubs. Um, then I was obviously, I wanted to perform well for Alan Clark who took me there and I wanted to perform well for Scunthorpe. And, and I did struggle. I struggled for several months at Scunthorpe. And that seemed to be the case in my career. Whenever I went to a different club, i seem seemed to struggle. Mentally, was it? I don't know if it's something to do with what's going on inside my head. We didn't have too many shrinks in those days to help you. But um, it was, yeah, I had a tough time in the beginning at Scunthorpe. But uh, I appreciate I'd like to think as time went by, I got better and better. And um, I think I
2: did reasonably okay there. Yeah, your first league goal, that was ironically against your old club, Sheffield United. It was at Bramall Lane and Scunthorpe United lose 5-3. But what were your thoughts, going back to the club that you supported as a boy and where it all started and scoring your first goal? Well, not only that, my friend, that day
1: was my birthday. So i go back to Bramall Lane, who was still my club at the time, my heroes. Some of the players who were still there was, I used to clean the boots and you know get all the kit ready and stuff. So they was on the pitch and it was a night match. And the fact that a lot of supporters in the crowd were Sheffield United fans, but they were my mates from school, and my family were there, and to go and score at Bramley, my very first league goal, you just you just can't make it up. Especially like I said, it was on my birthday as well, so it was a brilliant experience, something never to forget. And um, it was a brilliant game, uh, and we deserved to get a, a draw out of it. They were a cracking team at the time, but it was a shame we didn't get
2: some sort of result. But yeah, I'd made, finally scored my uh, debut goal. You were in and out of the first team, uh, not getting a regular start. How did you feel after a couple of months and not getting established? Yeah, it is.
1: Um, at first, I'm thinking, had I done the right thing, leaving you know Sheffield United, uh, my home city, my own club. Uh, to come to Scunthorpe, but uh, like I said, it was a mental thing inside my head to get that confidence. I was never a confident player until I became confident. That sounds crazy. I used to have these purple patches, and once I got that purple patch, I thought I could take anybody on, but it took a long time for that to happen. So, yeah, I was getting a bit stressed, and obviously the more stressed and the uptight you get your performance is not going to be, it's never going to be there. So, uh, and like I said, the only time I ever saw a shrink was at Partick Thistle, but that's another story um, Mm. to try and give me that confidence. Um, I can tell it if you want. Uh, Partick Thistle had a manager called John Lambie, and he was a a very eccentric manager. And he says, I'm going to send you to see a a shrink, a hypnotist. And he tried to hypnotise me, gave me this cassette and said, play this on a Friday night before every game and then you'll play like a world beater. <laughs> but you know, I couldn't they couldn't
2: hypnotize me, me, so I just pretended. <laughs> All right. So Alan Clark resigns in eighty four along with the chairman. How did you regard this situation? The chairman and the manager resigning together?
1: Yeah, it's do you know what at that point I was in and out of the team anyway with Alan Clark? But I was reading something the other day um, it, it's been The sun's been shining, so I've got every uh, programme I played for when I played for Scunthorpe. So I just grabbed a load of these, sat outside the garden, started reading the programmes, which at that point, by the way, was either 35p or 40p, and I, I couldn't believe how cheap they were. So yeah, when Alcott left, he, he, I was in and out of the team, I wasn't getting a regular game, but he did put, when in one of the programmes I picked out, he said... Julian Broad will be one for the future. This guy will do well for, Chef, uh, for Scunthorpe United uh, within the year or so. He will come good. And I'd like to think I repaid that because I like to think I did reasonably well when I was at Scunthorpe. But yeah, when we lost the, uh, was it David Wraith, the chairman at that time? I think it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But we were lucky, the fact that um, Frank Barlow was there as assistant manager. Now, Frank was such a nice guy, everybody would always go to him if they wanted to talk, and um, uh, you know, anything you wanted to talk about, he was always there for you, like, you could go to him instead of go to Alan Clark, if that makes sense, and he was such a nice guy and a great coach, he sort of took over, didn't he, and um, that... That gave me the confidence, having Frank Barlow there as manager to take over. Um, He gave me more opportunities and um,
2: I started scoring goals. I was going to put that to you as a question, but you've answered it for me very nicely. And I will just add to what you said about Frank Barlow. Frank, I thought, was the nicest man in football. And he says his fault was he wanted to please everybody, the directors, the players, the press, the fans. And he says, you can't do that. And he never wanted to be the actual manager again after he got sacked from school club, just because it's too big a responsibility. He yeah. being assistant manager is at lots of clubs. And if you ever talk to any players, they've always got high regard for Frank Barlow.
1: Yeah, and he's ex Chesterfield and also Sheffield United himself as well. But yeah, he was a brilliant guy doing just about every job in those days. you didn't, you know, it's a totally different world than now. But the manager sort of did almost everything in those days. But he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He, I don't, I don't know if I ever saw him get upset. He may have got angry once or twice, but. He knew it wasn't as serious with him because he was so nice. He was a brilliant manager, great coach, and once he got took over, he sort of gave me the confidence to say, "Okay, just." He basically let me have a free role in some occasions, which helped me to gain my confidence. And now and again, I, I scored one or two goals for Scunny.
2: And you'd got some great players there at that time, hadn't you? Stevie Kammer, uh, Billy Russell. Steve Lister, yeah, David yeah. Hill, Poynton Longy. I mean, there were some really good players, and it was a little bit disappointing that you didn't win promotion with that with those players.
1: Yeah, I can remember that first game of the season when we played Torquay. like Billy Russell and I think Steve Lister had joined. The Donny Lads had sort of joined that season that summer, and um, we took up. We we absolutely battered Torquay on the first game of the season. And I thought, this is it. We're, we have got a chance here. But it just never happened. and I, I don't understand why. There were just such, such cracking players. I've just got to pull the programme out. I'd, I'd come prepared, you see. <laughs> I've picked a programme <laughs> out here. And there was people like Neil Poynton. Like my, one of my closest mates was Dave Vill. He was just a bright, young, young lad. But of course, everybody knows Dave Ville. He would... He would run himself into the ground. He worked so hard for Scunny. But Steve Kamak, what a player, a goal scorer. I'm just looking at Mickey Lester. Mickey Lester, I always thought when I first went there, it to me was like a third and fourth division version of Glenn Hoddle. I, I thought he was that good. He was such a talented player. But, uh, and Tommy Great, there was Tommy Graham, oh, fantastic, great Mickey players. Bro,
2: Mickey Brawley used to take an age to warm up, didn't he? He was in the dressing room with Brawls and he, do, he stretches and that. He used to take him about an hour uh, to warm up <laughs> before he even started to get changed. He did, yeah. Whereas me, I'd just gone.
1: Um, all I needed was a couple of minutes, and I was on the pitch, and that was me ready to go. But uh, Mickey Brawl was the second half of his career. I was just a brand new young kid and um, very experienced player, cracking player, quite as a mouse. Um, we always thought he was very intelligent. I don't know if he was. I assumed he was. He came across intelligent anyway. But such a lo- lovely, lovely fella. And uh, to fact he was, he was. He was Scottish and one day I'd spend the rest of my career up in Scotland.
2: It's incredible. It's the wild, well, Frank Barlow's there that you score the fastest goal, uh, a ten-second goal the, the, versus South End. Can you talk us through that one? Do you know what?
1: I wasn't sure if it was South End. I kept I knew it was Summer Guinea with s I wasn't sure if it was them or Stockport. Yeah, most of uh, the supporters hadn't even sat down. They were still coming up, you know, into the stands. And um, we we obviously kicked off first. uh, And in those days, you had to play it back, didn't you, on the edge of the box. Um, And then it was just knocked out. I think it was just knocked out to the right wing. I can't remember. Came across to me, and then did I just do you know, did I head it? Did I just kick it? In? I don't know. It, but it was that quick and I thought, this is incredible. And it, it's like, yeah, the fastest goal in, in the football league that year. I don't know what year it was. It would have been obviously the early 80s. But to think people are just about to sit down and then they hear a little bit of a roar and think, what's going on? Well, well, they've scored already. Fantastic. So it's another one, you know, to, to remember. Was, yeah, brilliant.
2: And in the 85, 86 season, you have a terrific uh, FA Cup then. Um, you get to the fifth round, Tottenham Hotspurs at White Hart Lane, and everybody's talking about it. What was your anticipation of a game like that? Because you, you hadn't played against such opposition, had you, as Tottenham Hotspur, and you'd scored in every round up to then. You've done
1: all your homework, you have, haven't you? I <laughs> only have. Yeah, I'd scored in every round. So, obviously, when you get somebody like Tottenham Hotspur at White Hart Lane, it's... And as you're probably going to say, there's that big headlines hoddle, waddle and broddle. So um, that was that keeps coming back to me. People always say it to me. Oh, we can remember that that paper headline hoddle, waddle and brodle. So yeah, it was a, a massive game for us. We took probably most of Scunthorpe came down to White Hart Lane to watch that game. Uh, they keep telling me the when I speak to uh, Scunny fans, it's one of the coldest days ever. Uh, but we were running around, so obviously we didn't uh, feel it. But we gave them a good game, you know. We were so unlucky. We we were close. Now, I don't know if you know this, I was told at half time that um, Tottenham wanted to sign me. I wasn't playing particularly well that day, but they'd been watching clearly. And they, they wanted to sign me, but they couldn't agree a deal. And then after that, I think I probably had a dip or maybe injured, I don't know. Again, that was my luck. It, it never came back to me. But I was told that uh, they, they were trying to sign me at half-time.
2: Well, also, I've got, I've got that in the notes that um, Tottenham yeah. were interested in you, but also Manchester United. Did you know about that one? How did that uh, come about? Manchester United were interested in you.
1: Well... I didn't know to be truthful, but I once went and sat in um, Frank Barlow's office and he sort of gave a hint that they may be interested in me. But he never told me uh, out and out, we've got Manchester United interested in you. He sort of hinted, I can't remember the words, but he gave me the hint and I thought, does that mean... Manchester United want me, but the, it, again, uh, these things happened. I was I was an up and down player. I'm afraid I was I'd play well for two, poor for one, great for three, average for six. I was I was never consistent enough, and that's what you probably need to. Uh, it's a shame that someone didn't take a chance and say, "Look, it's going to cost us not much money to buy. Given you know, let's let's try him for a couple of years and see what we can do with him." Uh, And you never know. But I'm not saying, however, I had a fantastic career of 17 years, so I can't grumble.
2: So, yes, you you had a really good run at the club, um, scoring 32 goals in 134 games. But Frank Barlow is sacked in March 87, and Mick Buxton is brought in, and you find yourself in and out of the team. Did you not? You just fit into Buxton's plans, and weren't you his type of player?
1: Yes, Mr Buxton, my favourite manager. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, uh, look, uh, we didn't get on. He didn't like me from the day we got there. And that's when he turned up, I'd been training extra hard, you know, trying to get myself super fit, so to speak, doing extra bits of training. And he came along now, whether he'd been speaking to people and said, who's the best players at Scuddy, or... I don't know. I, I'd like to think I was one of them, but maybe he might have thought I was some arrogant so-and-so and he wanted to knock me down a peg or two. He just wouldn't play me. I started for him in the first couple of games, but then he just wouldn't play me and he just didn't like me. I don't know why. He's never t- He never told me why, because next thing you know, um, Barnes had come for me, who were two divisions higher in the second division, as it was then, championship now, and he, he couldn't wait to get rid of me.
2: Yes, but the fans were in uproar, weren't they? Because you only went for ten thousand, and as you said, Barnsley, two divisions higher, um, they must have thought you was an absolute snip at that. And the media weren't happy, uh, the fans weren't happy, and yeah. you weren't happy. I was. I was settled. I um,
1: my I bur- my, bought my first house in Bottisford. Uh, I can even remember, it's called Conference Court, little townhouse for, you won't get this these days, 10,000 for a modern townhouse. (laughs) So I was happy there, you know, and then he comes along and destroys it. I was playing well for Scumsthorpe. And I can remember, we went down to as Glanford Park as it's called now. Do you, know, do you know when you first do those pictures, when they bring the JCB digger and you have a photograph yes. of all the players? We had that photograph taken and then I drove straight over to Barnsley, uh, spoke to Alan Clark, who was obviously the manager, and there you go. Um, they let me go. I couldn't believe it when they said it was only £10,000. I know one at local politicians, a councillors, he was in uproar, and um, but what could I do? He didn't want me... And I'm thinking, well, if he doesn't want me, I, I've got to go. And I'm going up to the, the championship, the second division, as it was then. So um, I, I don't know. I'd love to know what his thoughts were. He just didn't like me. Totally. So how did, you, how
2: did you find Clark when you rejoined him? Had he changed any of his methods? Was he just the same type of manager? Same type of manager. He
1: had he had a cracking team to be there. So they were they were a wonderful side, and they just knocked the ball about, which is how he wanted to always play. And uh, again, I, I slowly, slowly got my chance. Um, I used to be in and out with John Beresford. I don't remember he went up to sign to Portsmouth eventually for a lot of money, yeah. and went up to Newcastle United with Keegan. So I was sort of on that side, playing on that sort of left back, left. You know, that sort of wing-back type. So I was in and out of the team, but again, I knew I'd get the opportunity at some point. I thought, would I make this grade? Was it good enough? But in time, of course, I got my confidence. And again, I left Barnsley and I was probably the best player at Barnsley. So people told me, not me, um, I was probably the best player at the team in at Barnsley when um, a new manager came along and I got pushed out again. Is
2: it uh, at Barnsley where you start playing more defensively and play fullback a lot, lot more? Because when I was looking through uh, trying to get some information, that, see, I always remember you playing as a left winger or down the middle as a forward. And then all of a sudden, I, n- I notice it says in there that you was a fullback At um, Barnsley, you played 77 times and only scored one goal. So I'm just guessing this is where you learned your trade as a fullback.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh... One of the backs like said um, John Beresford had left to Portsmouth for a lot of money. Then we had also a guy called Paul Cross, and he was one at the so he was a left back as well. So I was competing with him. He then got a bad, in, a serious injury. So Alan Clark says, well. Go on, you play left back. Let's let's give you a goal gate. You know, give you a chance there. And I started, I was bombing up and down. I was loving. It. I played, and I started playing really, really well. And the fans were behind me. So I ended up being a left back, but you know I could bomb on every so often. I could get there and get the crosses across. So I was like, "Yeah, it's up and down, up and down." And uh, there was one time uh, when I think Leeds United and Man City and all these sort of players were in that; those teams were in that league. I played half a season at right back because then Joe Joyce, who went to Scunthorpe, Joe didn't he? He yes, got a bad he, he got a bad injury. So I ended up playing right back for half the season. And I thought, you know, there was people like Gordon Strackett, a lot of big clubs. and And I'm playing, you know, as you know, most of the time I just stood on my right foot. But that's the confidence Alan Clark had of me as a fullback. In hindsight.
0: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: I maybe should have played up front or a free role in my career but because I think I would have been a decent centre-forward. I just never got that opportunity. And once um, Alan Clark started playing me as a full-back, um, when I left Barnsley, I left as a full-back and Plymouth Argyle signed me as a left-back. So I ended up being sort of a left-back, uh, wing-back sort of type player
2: yeah so you leave Barnsley, go down to Plymouth and you only make nine appearances before you're heading back north and it's well north this time because it's into Scotland, and uh, it was Scotland where you started with the uh, success. this move must have triggered your success in in, the, in those days. but how did you find the standard of football up there to the standard that you've been playing in in the English League?
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> right it's a story of my
1: life. I went down to Plymouth, absolutely loved it down there, beautiful. Uh, and the manager who signed me, Ken Brown, he resigned after three weeks. A new guy comes along from Wimbledon. Don't want your mate. I know they've paid 100 odd, I don't know how much they paid for me, a lot of money. You're not my sort of player. And he says, so I was sort of stuck in the reserves. I, like I said, I played nine, 10, 11 games or something, and then I had the chance to go up to St. Mirren in Paisley, which is just outside Glasgow, uh, a Premier League team. And half the team were like there was lots of big players in their club and um, and I thought well it can't get any worse so I might as well go up to Scotland and um, I joined St Mirren and that's how it started and again I had a fantastic time at St Mirren again uh, a new manager came along who didn't want me. I don't know what it is. There's a pattern here, and then that's I moved on again. But eventually, yeah, I went to Ray Throvers. But when I first got there at Saint Mirren, it was super fast and physical. But it was in those days, even in in England. These days, when I watch it on TV, you just you can't touch a player, you can't tackle it at all. It's but in those days, like I said at Barnsley, if you didn't get stuck in there, the the Barnsley supporters would soon tell you. So it was fast and furious, but a reasonable standard because we were playing Celtic and Rangers four times a season each. Yeah. So that's what you did there. Plus, you might play them in cup games, so you were playing in packed houses playing uh, big clubs like Graeme Souness' team of Rangers, who was dominating at that point. But I played with players like, you know, um, Paul Lambert. He went on to play for Borussia Dortmund and won the Champions League. People like that had Steve Archibald, who was played for Tottenham in the FA Cup in Barcelona. And, I was playing with Victor Munoz, Spanish captain, Espanyol, Barcelona. So there's a lot of big players. And um, we were just an average team. We just couldn't click. But it was a brilliant experience at St Mirren.
2: So after your first experience in Scotland, you come back to Scunthorpe. But it's not really home because you go to Glanford Park where you haven't played before. And how did you find that month on loan with Bill Green? And, and how did Bill treat you?
1: Bill was brilliant. He, he treated me fantastic. fantastic. It, again, I wasn't fit enough. Um, it was playing me down the left and uh, up and down, bombing up and down, and I wasn't fit enough to do it. it. I should have probably played more central role or totally as a left back or something. Then it might have, you know, I might have had a, a decent run. But it, it was fantastic to go back. I'd never played there. It was brilliant to come back to Scunthorpe and the supporters uh, to see Bill Green, of course, as manager and um it was, it was 1992 I think around September time um and uh, great experience uh, totally new team of course with one or two exceptions uh I think I come to take Dave Hill's place because Dave was got a bad injury and that's I think why they brought me down on loan but I jumped at it because I was I think I was at Partick Thistle Uh, and it wasn't great there. (laughs) So uh, I jumped at the chance of coming down, but that was it. I played a few games and I was back up there, but within a short time I joined Wraith Rovers.
2: Wraith hadn't won a trophy in 111 years, but you've got to the League Cup final against the mighty Celtic. How apprehensive were you before that game?
1: Yeah, it was um, because we were a lower league team. We, We were in a division below. Um, and so to get there was incredible it was a fantastic build-up the it wasn't being played at Hamden Park because they were uh, renovating it getting, building some new stands so they played it actually at Ibrox their big rivals Rangers and it was great because Jimmy Nickel was an ex-Rangers player uh, so we trained on uh, Ibrox all week they were helping us with the studs and Telling us you must play this way in the first half of the you know the game, and so they wanted us to beat them because they're the biggest rivals. So it was a brilliant experience. We played well in each round to get there. We deserved to get there, and um, we had a lot of young players, a lot of talented young players who weren't frightened. They. They weren't like people like me. I was coming towards the last part of my career and I thought, well, oh, Celtic in a cup final. Cameras are there, full house. You know, again, I'd get a little bit worried because we had a lot of young players who just wanted to go out and play. And on the particular day, the, the young lads won that game for us. They were fantastic. And um, we were fortunate enough to win. And, and in those days, if you won a cup final, you
2: played in Europe. <laughs> so that's what we did. Yeah, and just keep with the cup final for a few minutes, because it was all square, wasn't it, at uh, full time, and um, after 93 minutes, you're sub because of an injury, what was it like watching when you couldn't help your teammates, you, you've got injured and you sat on the sidelines?
1: yeah um, like I said I played most of the game and into extra time and uh, also to, to be fair they did me a favour because <laughs> so, I thought if this goes to penalties I don't want to be taking one <laughs> um, so th- that was another excuse yeah it was uh, first of all we scored with about four minutes to go Gordon Dial, who was a brilliant goal scorer he was like Cammy, Steve Camac always scored goals top scorer for Ray Rovers in the history just like Cammy was he was always there so we scored the last few minutes to equalise we were brilliant in, in extra time and then it's the penalties and I couldn't look I looked the other way and then once we got the cheers that Tomo Scott Thompson who was my roommate the keeper saved that final against McStay the final uh, penalty well I grabbed old Jimmy Nickel the manager and um what a night that was. What a, what a time. And, and the great thing is, whenever we go, I get invited up there to Kikadi, where race play, you, you get treated like a king. They, they will never forget it because that was their time. It was the best time in their history, those two or three seasons. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that team. Uh, what a wonderful time I get that's it, I get invited every so often and I um, uh, don't have to put my hand in my pocket and that's quite good as a Yorkshireman because I don't have to buy drinks or anything they'll pay for it
2: all night for me <laughs> Yeah but the Scotsmen are just as bad um, So that's going <laughs> to rank at the top of your achievements is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely that and we also won we were lucky again that season we, we were winning the uh, Cup rounds to get through but we couldn't win a league game and then soon as we'd won the cup, we then went on and I don't think we lost a game. We may have lost one. We then went on because that final was in November. We then went on and I think we may have lost one game from that point and won the league championship by one point to our local rivals, Dunfermline. So we won the champ, we did a double. So we then went back up into the Scottish Premier. And um, it was brilliant experience because the following season we played in Europe. You, you you just can't make it up for a tiny club. Wraith Rovers are very similar to Scunthorpe United. That sort of size of a town, size of support. Uh, but when we were playing, it was buzzing. They were getting 9,000, 10,000, 11,000 when they could. Uh, and... but. Like, these days, you're lucky if they get two or 3,000, uh, if that. But then, it was such a buzz, it, we just filled the ground every, every week.
2: Yeah, what was it like, then, You, you anticipating that you're going to be playing in the best club football in Europe? You're going to be playing against one of the best teams at the Olympic Stadium. It must have been a bag of nerves.
1: We just couldn't stop laughing to be honest. We just couldn't believe this little club was playing in Europe. We... We first of all played this Pharaoh uh, team. You have to play them home and away, and no one can pronounce it. We used to call them "Go To" because that's the start the "Go To" intrafolag or something. Uh, and we I got banned at match, fun enough for the home game. Uh, so we beat them. Then we played an Icelandic team called the Krannis, and half their team, well, most of their team played for Iceland's international side. Plus, some of them went on to play for a lot of clubs in England, Chelsea and what have you. So we eventually beat them, and then we got the draw and it's by munich and we just you know what what are we doing you know it's just incredible so yeah we it was a brilliant experience playing them at home and then again we went to play out there in munich and it was my birthday again. well it was the, uh, it was the 31st of october mine was the 1st so when we woke up the next morning it was my birthday in, in germany i was i was there but it, it the experience was we were beating them in the Olympic Stadium at half-time. We were 1-0 up. And when Jimmy Nichol brings us into the you know, the big changing rooms, we were dead quiet. We could hear their manager having a right go at them. In German, of course, we didn't know what they were saying. And then Jimmy Nichol started laughing his head off, and then we just couldn't stop laughing. I thought, this is crazy. We're, we're beaten by Munich. Of course, we didn't. We lost 2-1 in the end, but what an experience. And, and it just goes to show when... When we left, and it just shows the difference in Bayern Munich and Wraith Rovers, when we left at full-time, we, they came out in the soups and they were doing all these interviews and they were going off to do to a training camp to prepare for the next game. Us, we all came out holding crates of beer. All, all the team, we had a crate of beer between every one of us to get onto the bus so we could go back to the to the hotel to have a few beers before we went into Munich to have a to stay out all night and, you know, have a few more drinks. And that's the difference between Wraith Rovers and uh, Bayern Munich. But what an experience. Brilliant.
2: So after 73 appearances and a lot of success uh, and one goal for Wraith, it's Short Spells at East Fife and then Ross County and then retiring in 1997, Yes. 97 98ish. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Unbeknown
1: to me. As I went to East Five, which was down the road. We got promotion. Uh, Steve Archibald had become manager there. And then I went up to Ross County up in the Highlands, who had they had some a lot of money, believe it or not. They had a very rich oil tycoon. And um so I went up there, but it didn't really work out and I played the last game against their uh, rivals, uh Callie Thistle, uh, up there. Uh, in Inverness and then that was it I retired beyond I, I should have played semi-pro maybe come back home or something but it just never happened uh, and and that was me finished and I never played again and I should have played semi-pro but there you go it didn't happen.
2: So you retire from football and then it's a yeah. new career into the uh, police and you ex... Playing that has been like football in as much, it's very much teamwork.
1: Yeah, it's, you, you work with a team. I started at Greater Manchester Police and that was my favourite time in, in Manchester. And you have your own team. At Those days we had our own police dog, we had our own traffic car. So we worked as a team that we would go out. In fact, that's the first time I'd actually worked with females. I'd spent 17 years just playing football with, with men. I'd never worked with females ever. So that was strange in itself. Um, so we had a brilliant team. I worked in the, in the Stockport area at the time. And um, pr- fantastic camaraderie, great experiences. And um, regrettably, I left Greater Manchester to come back home to um, this area. I joined Nottinghamshire Police for a short time. Didn't like it. Went back to Greater Manchester. And then towards the end, I came back to South Yorkshire Police, where it all went belly up.
2: Yeah, but uh, let's just talk about... You give Gordon Brown some stick for, for missing your game uh, with Rafe.
1: Well, he missed both finals. He missed the uh, cup final against Celtic, and he missed, obviously, playing Bayern Munich. And his excuses were, because uh, we were doing the Labour Party. I was a police officer then, and that's how I met up with him again. He loves Ray Rovers, so he came looking for me, and I. So I'm talking to him, and he says he, he couldn't make him because he had these meetings. And I'm thinking, well, surely he could have got out of there. So I gave him a little bit of stick at the time, and he took it. You know, he took it well. But um, yeah, he was one of our most famous uh, celebrities. Is uh, Gold uh, Brown? Uh, and we've got uh, we've got a author, famous author called Valbit Dermot. She does a lot of big books, uh, what have been produced on television. Um, so we've got her as well. So they have got a couple of well-known celebrities who follow away through us. But yeah, that was a long time ago. You also met President Clinton. Did he have much to say to you? <clears throat> I did. <laughs> the most powerful man in the world. Um, I was stuck on the floor, um, security-wise, even though they had their own security, as you can imagine, these people. But for some reason, they wanted... Greater Manchester Police uh, in the hotel, keeping it secure. And all we had was C.S. spray and uh, you had your asp, your bat, and that's about it in the radio. So we were sat at either side and, incredibly, he comes up on the lift and uh, he comes out the lift with all his security and started talking and we were chatting away for ages. And he was lovely, a lovely guy. I got, He was really good. As you can imagine, he's... He can talk to anybody because he, he's, he's done that all his life. And, he, and to think he was talking to little old me, you just couldn't, you just, you couldn't imagine it. it stuck, out. I was sat outside this lift reading probably the, the newspapers, just just sat there. And then he came out. You stand up quickly, of course. And
2: that was it. We've chatting away for ages. It was fantastic. And also tell us about the accommodations that you got for bravery.
1: Yeah, this girl, and she got in touch recently, actually. She's now got to have three or four children. She, uh, Well, there's two occasions. Are we talking about the girl that nearly drowned? Or the other yes,
2: one? yes, the woman nearly drowned.
1: Yeah, she was, um, she was on this swing, this young kid, and it, it snapped as it does, and she'd hit her head on, on a rock in this fast-flowing river, and I happened to be driving past and her uh, mate jumped on the bonnet of my car it was in a park, and um, she jumped on it. That's why I was driving really slow. So she's screaming and would sort of get in, the, tries to explain. So I'd go down into this river, and she was unconscious. We brought her back again, and um, I stayed there until eventually it seemed like hours for the ambulance to come. And we we, no, we revived her. She had three or four brain hemorrhages and operations, and um, she survived. Uh, she came around, and um, years later, about a year ago, she got in touch and says, I are you the same person? I said, well, not many people have a name like me, but yeah. <laughs> he yeah, I, I now have three or four children, and if it wasn't for you, I'd probably be dead. It, it, this wouldn't have happened. So that was fantastic. Great
2: feeling. Yeah. And then wasn't there a time where some you was attacked your police car?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, night shift in, um, in Bolton. Uh, welcome to Bolton. Yeah, I was on a uh, beautiful s- summer's night, and... Um, I'd seen these lads running out of this little ginnel, whatever you want to call it. So I spun my car around, and then uh, they sped off in this car. And um, eventually, they pulled out. They pulled in for me. I had all the lights on. I was trying to explain to the radio, of all the areas in Bolton, there's one area where, at that point, the radio, the communicators couldn't pick it up. So I'm trying to give them registrations and various other stuff. No one knew where I were. And then suddenly, they jumped out as I got out of the car they jumped out all masked up with shotguns and a sledgehammer. Um, I tried to get in the car, and they, they jump on the bonnet, smashing its smithereens, and this guy's got a, a shotgun to my head. And basically, I'm not going to swear, but he says, give me your keys or else I'm going to blow your head off. He said it a bit more than just that. He was swearing at yeah. as well. So, um, yeah, so that happened, and eventually they were, they were armed robbers. They were bank robbers, so wanted all over Britain. So they eventually got them so well so they told me and I hope
2: you don't mind me bringing this up but you was also there the day the two lady police uh, officers got murdered weren't you in Manchester yeah
1: yeah yes that's uh, that was awful I um, that was I'd moved again that was still Greater Manchester Police that was Ashton Underline that was just before I moved to South Yorkshire towards the end and um there were two colleagues and it could have been anybody in that car and um they happened to want to uh, go together, and the sergeant allowed them to go go together because they wanted to talk. They were basically they were trying to organise a Christmas do, you know, how to go about it and all that sort of thing. So they wanted to sit in the in the car together and talk about it as the driving along doing the duty, and um, they went to this so-called burglary, and of course um, Dale Cregan came running out, tried to blow up the car, and shot them. And um, I was the only one allowed to stay on the scene. He pulled Ashton, Underline, all our division away, uh, and everybody else came in. But I was the one what stayed, the only one allowed to stay. And I was the one what found out he tried to uh, blow up the car with a hand grenade. Yeah, so that was awful. It was a bad time at Greater Manchester Police. But everybody across Britain, all the other police forces rallied round, and they were amazing. Everybody wanted to
2: help us. It was a horrible experience, really bad. And um, you had 18 exemplary years in the police force, and I'm going to use your words, and at the end it went belly up.
1: Yeah, not many people ask me about that. (laughs) Um, I usually tell them, uh, if you buy my book, down the line, you can get it from Amazon, you'll find out what I believe happened. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to say the ins and outs. I got checked on on a drug test and uh, apparently i was off the ricki scale in 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 cocaine and stuff so you get randomly tested and you just like football you get randomly tested in football so they can pull you in at any time and in the police when you're out and about as a frontline cop which i was you can get pulled in and get randomly tested got randomly tested and apparently i was uh like I said they in their words i was off the Richter scale in cocaine um I've tried to explain it in the book. Um, There is also a thing um, which someone, uh, the press got in touch with me, the uh, TV, Channel 5, said there's an ongoing investigation about uh, some guys was mixing all the drugs up at the time uh, because they send the drugs off to, I think it's two or three places in Britain. And uh, they've locked them all up. So I've been told um they said there's an ongoing investigation that they were thought it would be funny if they mix up everybody's you know drunk drivers drug drivers all that sort of thing yeah that that could have happened to me um but no one's ever got back to me uh, and if i tried to sue them then it cost me a fortune so yeah. i just
2: i left and that was it but, but as you mentioned earlier that led to you writing the book about your football career about your career in the police and it knocked Alice Ferguson off the top spot for book sales in the world it
1: did 2017 um, I was number one and of course you've got to remember Alex Ferguson never wrote his he had a ghostwriter what did his I wrote every word of mine Uh, he doesn't need to of course and I think Stevie Gerrard is number four but it's not just about us it's when they put it in the category it's across the world in america it's all the big american football stars and the basketball stars and so to compete with those guys and to get to number one it's just it's just crazy you just can't believe it actually happened and nowadays apparently you can press a button and put it in and put it in their language all over the world because I get told, it was when I released it, it was just in English. So you can imagine when I could see people buying it in Germany and all these countries, how did you understand it? But, of course, a lot of countries do understand English because they're better than what we are. The, um, but nowadays, I think you can press a button and they turn it into their own language. Um, so you can get you still get it across the world, bar Australia. They don't do Amazon
2: in Australia. So we're going to ask one or two fans questions now. Whilst at Sheffield. Seb Coe would sometimes train with you and use the facilities. Any memories of him?
1: Yes. We used to train a lot then with uh, Ian Porterfield's manager at a place called Graves Park in Sheffield. And Seb Coe and his dad, because his dad used to train him, used to come and join us. And um, I would say he was a brilliant guy. He tried to mix with us down to earth. His dad was so strict. He was quite uh, tough on him, and I was quite surprised at times how he used to be very aggressive. To, But he was best in the world, and probably his dad was right. But lovely guy, brilliant runner, and I wish I could have run like him. I wish I could now.
2: <laughs> yeah, don't we all? Um, from your book, we have to ask about that TV AM as you won Most Romantic Story and Appeared on TV Whilst at Scunthorpe. <laughs> Talk us through that and what exactly happened.
1: Yeah, thanks for that one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, 1986, Fergie was getting married to Prince Andrew. We shouldn't talk much about that one. And um, TVM was, was it Nick and Ann Diamond? I can never remember Nick's first, he was a, a football fanatic, a Luton fan. Um, can't remember his surname now. It'll come later. Anyway, they were big at the time. Uh, Nick and Anne on TVM, and they had this competition uh, for an, a normal couple to to come to TVM and be Bride of the Year. It was called. So it happened to be my wife was then. She wrote into him, told them we met when we were kids skiing, and we we wrote letters to each other for years and years. Finally met up in Liverpool. We really got on and got married. So they thought it was romantic. Unbeknown to me, she'd done this. Eventually, she told me we'd actually won it. And um, so we were on TVAM every morning, and I was down there. I didn't tell any of the scunny lads. Because you know, I'd get—you can imagine—I'd get hammered for it. Um, So, and then also the fact was they wouldn't be up at that time in the morning. It it was on live at six or seven in the morning or something. So I got away with it. No one sort of knew about it. And then um, they filmed the entire wedded and various other stuff and um, my wife jan at the time she was sent to pages of news of the world it used to have a sunday magazine i don't know if you can remember that and she was sent to pages they took all these beautiful photographs and all that sort of thing
2: so yeah it was an experience you can imagine <laughs> right and the next one is what's it like to be a panini sticker <laughs>
1: Brilliant. Um, I wish I got paid for it. Yeah, panini stickers. Uh, one of the lads, when I used to be in the police towards the end, he, he came in once with a panini sticker, and he says he had to pay about £5 for it, and he was gutted because it was a, such a rare sticker. So he'd bought <laughs> one for £5. But yeah, um, brilliant. I, I'm also told I was also in the European Is that football manager and also one or two of the other ones in the early years. But we never got paid for this. I remember uh, Oliver Kahn. Remember the West, uh, the German goalkeeper, and Bayern Munich. Yeah, he sued him. Yeah. He got fortunes. He but they said, "Oh, they used his face with a lot of the I don't know whatever the Panini books and what have you." So he got all this money. I never saw any of it, but yes, I am in the Panini stickers and Football Manager, and um, I'm proud to say it. It's nice to look back and think, yeah, at least I've got my name with with all these big stars.
2: Yeah, great. <laughs> Uh, do you have a favourite goal that you scored for Scunthorpe United and a favourite game too?
1: Ooh, I remember I scored against Ipswich, and that was a really good goal. Uh, I think we played in the FA Cup or in a, a cup match. They were a big team at the time, still are really, but they were about a couple of divisions above us. And it was, I think it was a night match. And um, I scored a cracking goal against him. And I think I remember, it was Cooper, the keeper. Remember, he used always used to save penalties. Was his name Cooper? My memory's going to only but he was one of the well-known goalkeepers in in Britain, in England. And I scored a cracking goal at the edge of the 18-yard box. Um, so that was good. And of course, my first goal, to score my very first goal in football for Scunthorpe on my birthday at Bramall Lane. And I went, I'd, did you know, I did score 50-odd goals. I did score... Two goals against Bolton Wanderers for Barnsley. So I did, I FA it was quite good to me. So yeah, I think I scored about 50 goals in all competitions.
2: During your time at the Iron, you played under four managers. Who suited you the best? Oh, that's dangerous. Ooh, now then.
1: Uh, can I say uh, Frank Barlow at Scunny and overall... Frank Barlow and Alan Clark at Barnsley because Frank Barlow went to assistant manager to Barnsley in the end. If you can remember,
0: starting yes. at Barnsley
1: as well. So uh, Scunny definitely Frank Barlow, and then I would say Alan Clark overall at Barnsley and
2: Scunny. Yeah. And the last question is: Where does Scunthorpe rank in your career, and uh, what does Scunthorpe itself mean to you?
1: Massive, because I was treated so nice there. And just like raith Rovers, there's, there's the two clubs where I've been treated so nice. I've, do you know what? And um, when I was promoting my book, uh, Down the Line, Scunthorpe couldn't wait to invite me, and Wraith Rovers couldn't wait. And I did go to all the other clubs within reason. Sheffield United never once invited me. So that sort of says it all. But whenever I go back to Scunthorpe, it's fantastic. Uh, I still go back there recently. Uh, I've been to see Alan Clark once or twice and sat in his house and gone down memory lane. The fans are brilliant at Scunny. They're brilliant on social media to me. Them and Ray Throwers, perhaps a little bit of Barnsley and St. Mirren. But Scunny was a big part of my career. And um, I just wish I was invited back more often. I'd love to come back a bit more often.
2: Well, thank you very much, John. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, going down memory lane. I don't know if the two guys that have been helping me um, have got any questions for you, but I don't think we've missed much.
1: Oh, you've pretty much covered anything. I, I just wrap up a little bit I mean Julian Tony thank you so much it's been great just sitting here and listening to you guys just have a chat for an hour it's been fantastic yeah, well I'm good to because I thought I was doing Zoom I've got my hair cut I've got a Up <laughs> United football shirt out and, and I've got my little teddy bear which has got a Scunthorpe United badge on, which I was given a couple of years ago from you guys. So, where did the you get your haircut? Where did you <laughs> no, get your haircut? Yes, I have today for you. That's, that's how much <laughs> I felt about it. I was, I, I was in,
2: in Scunthorpe last week uh, in Ashby, in my car, and I had the window down, waiting at the Zebra Crossing. And this lady of the night put her head in my window, and she said, I'll do anything for 20 quid. I said, Do you cut hair? <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> well i've got someone i'm lucky enough who did it for
1: me she, a bit of a disaster but uh, at least i've had my hair done that <laughs> so yeah, okay it's brilliant. Well, thank you very much
0: yeah, always great. You thank you me,
1: julian just let me know if you ever need me i'm always there
0: that's great and thank you very much everybody to listen to this really appreciate it and we'll see you on the next one even on a budget quality is non-negotiable